Let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. Let me just tell you about two other things uh, that I failed to mention earlier. One, our book of the month for the month of July is is a commentary on First and Second Samuel, and uh, you received a, a handout for that in the bulletin, um, informational, and there's a sign-up sheet on the back table for that. But I thought it'd be helpful for you to actually see the book, so there's a copy of the book on the back table for you to look through. If that'd be something that would help you as we study through First and Second Samuel, beginning in a few weeks on Sunday evening, uh, that that would be great to uh, kind of keep pace with our study. So I'll recommend that for your, your reading and your study. And then secondly, uh, in two weeks from today, Dan and Joanne Cuthbertson and their family are going to be with us for the morning uh, service and for Sunday school. And so um, we'll have a combined Sunday school that morning. They'll share with us an update on their ministry there in Africa. And then they, uh, Dan will preach in the morning service. And then we'll have a lunch together followed by an afternoon service. So uh, if you'd like to join us for that lunch, please do. Just ask that you bring $5 per person, the maximum 20 per family, and then also one side, and it'll either be a side dish or a dessert based on where your name falls in the alphabet. And so look in the bulletin to make sure you know what you're bringing, and uh, we'll provide the rest uh, for that day. It'll be a good time of, of fellowship and, and uh, learning. And so I'd encourage you, that's two weeks from today on July 26th. I wonder what it will take for us to get excited about the Gospel. Paul here, we've seen, has has been so eager to share the glory of the Gospel with the Romans that he plans to visit them. He, he wants to visit them so badly that he makes plans to say, hey, when I get back from Jerusalem, I'm, I'm coming to visit you. And the reason that he is so eager to visit this church in Rome is because he loves the Gospel. He knows the power of the Gospel. He has seen how the Gospel has changed lives. I wonder if familiarity has bred contempt for us with regard to the Gospel. I wonder if we're like the Bat Boy for the Detroit Tigers. Sure, at one time... It must have been exciting to be so close to the players and pick up after them and to get high fives after a home run. But I wonder if over time that some bat boys would become complacent and tired with their job. You know, the long rain delays, the crazy hours, the tobacco-stained dugout floor, having to pick up for everyone. Or maybe it's like working at a bank. The thrill of being around stacks and stacks of money might seem pleasant at first, but maybe over time it can become just another job. And I wonder if that's how we think about the Gospel. That yes, at one time it had its glitter. It was like a new car to us. It was exciting. It was clean. It was new. And it was all that we thought about. It was all that we wanted to talk about. But several years now have passed. And we're not really focusing on the roar of the engine like we once did. Now all we can focus on is the rust that's on the door and the constant maintenance that needs to be done. We can't focus on anything but the cost. 
and the, and the gospel can, over time, lose its glitter in our minds because we've forgotten about what a, a powerful engine we have in the gospel. And this letter here was written to remind us about that great glory and what, in fact, we were saved from and what we were saved to do. God didn't save you so that you would have an unbalanced gaze on the problems that come with being a Christian. Yes, there are problems that come with being a Christian. Yes, there is maintenance involved in having a new car. But that's not what God saved you for, to focus on those things. He saved you to glory and being made a part of His family, to be, to be one of His children. And Paul here in verses 16 and 17 gives what I think is the thesis for this letter, which is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ brings us into a right relationship with God so that we might serve Him. The Gospel brings us into a right relationship with God so that we might serve Him. Let's take a look at these two verses together. I'll begin reading with verse 16. This is the Word of God. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The Gospel is God's power to save and is something that we ought to glory in because it is glorious. Now, last time we saw that one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Romans was so that he could tell them that he planned to come to them. He mentioned that multiple times in verses 8 to 15. I've made plans. I desire, I have this great longing to come and see you. So that's one of the purposes that he wrote his letter, to tell them, hey, I want to come and see you. But here's the other purpose, and it is here in verses 16 and 17, that He wants to show you the glory of the Gospel. And this, I think, is the main reason that He writes this letter. He wants the believers to know the Gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings us into a right relationship with God. That's what we'll see in chapters 1-11. through The Gospel of Jesus Christ brings us into a right relationship with God. And then, chapters 12-16, through the Gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us and motivates us to serve Him. But I want you to see that that these two main reasons for Paul's writing are not disconnected. His first reason is, I want to come and see you. Second reason is, I want to show you the glory of the Gospel. Let me show you how these are connected. Look at verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. So there's this desire to come and preach firsthand to them. And then notice the next word in verse 16. For. I want to come and preach to you in Rome for. Paul is eager to preach the Gospel in in Rome to the Romans. Why? Because he's not ashamed of it. Because he loves it. He glories in it. I'm eager to preach the Gospel to you. And while I may be tempted to be ashamed of this Gospel that brings about reproach, I'm not ashamed of it, but rather I want, I want you to receive it and see it for its great glory. 
So this morning, let's look at five aspects of the Gospel from these two verses. Five aspects of the Gospel. Number one, we need to understand the definition of the Gospel. The definition of the Gospel. The Gospel very simply could be defined with two words. What are they? Good news. The Gospel means good news. And it's the good news that Jesus Christ has paid the full penalty for your sins. Your sin and mine deserved God's eternal wrath. And the good news is that Jesus paid for that penalty. He he took that penalty upon Himself so that you would not have to pay it yourself. And that good news is available to all who will believe. Every single person who believes that Jesus is enough to satisfy all that God demands will be saved. That's the truth of the Gospel of Romans. The Gospel that comes from Romans. Or to use the words of verse 16, the Gospel is God's saving power. It's His saving power for everyone who believes. It's the kind of news that compels a person to shout in the streets. It's that kind of good news. Like after a war is over or after a baby is born. That's the kind of good news that Paul wants us to know and to love. It's the good news about Jesus Christ, that He is our salvation. second aspect of the Gospel that we need to consider is the effect of the Gospel. Notice what Paul says here in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of this Gospel. Now, we might not give a whole lot of thought to this, but if you've received much persecution, verbal or physical persecution as a result of the Gospel, maybe you have. Because on the surface level, the Gospel is shameful. That is, from a human perspective, the Gospel is shameful. Think about it. The Gospel begins by telling us that we are vile sinners. That's what chapters 1-3 through three are all about. There is none righteous. Not even one. There's not one person who has enough right uh, actions that can, that can uh, attain to a perfect standing before God. No one can do it. There's not one righteous, not even one. That's how the Gospel begins. Do you see the shamefulness of it from a human perspective? When we go and take the Gospel to someone, we first have to convince them that they're a vile sinner. Now, that's not all of the Gospel, praise God, but it's a huge hurdle for proud sinners to overcome, isn't it? That you are a vile sinner. I am a vile sinner. And to top that off, the vileness of our sin is so great that we can't remedy ourselves. We don't have anything that we can do to remedy our sin. We can't just bandage ourselves up and say, okay, God, I've covered up all of those evil things that I've done. Now can you accept me? It doesn't work that way. That's how vile our sin is. There's nothing that we can do to come before God and demand that He accept us because our sin is so egregious to Him. We are like the defendant who stands before the judge with a murder charge. We cannot say to the judge, Judge, I've done all these other good things, so can't you just dismiss the murder charge? Do you see all this community work that I've done? you see how good I've been to my family? He would be an unjust judge to overlook your murder. In the same way, God cannot overlook our sin by looking at all of our acts of righteousness. 
God would be unjust to do so. And so, our sin is so vile that we can't even remedy our sin before a holy God. Instead, we need God to do something for us. We need God to provide an atonement for us, a sacrifice. And He did that through the person of His Son. How are we supposed to take this Gospel that is, at face value, offensive to a world full of proud sinners? This idea of sin and the vileness of sin is a hurdle that no person can overcome without the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel on the surface level, at face value, is shameful. And if we continue on with the content of the Gospel, again, from a human perspective, there doesn't seem to be much to it. Because the remedy for this sin that's charged to our account or that we've brought upon ourselves, the remedy is through an ordinary Jewish carpenter and teacher who is put to death by a Roman governor and then raised back to life and now is Lord of all. This is the message of the Gospel. And do you see how this message could be a stumbling block to Jews? And it could be foolishness to non-Jews, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Because for a Jew, it did make sense that a Messiah would die. Because in their minds, Messiahs don't die. They live, they conquer, they rule, they reign. They have authority over all. They, they remove their oppressors. They don't get, they don't get crushed by their oppressor, oppressors like our Messiah did. That's why for the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And for the Gentiles, it's foolishness because this Jewish carpenter was killed by Romans. And if he was killed by Romans, then that must mean in their minds that he deserved it. If he was killed in that way, crucifixion, then he must have been one of the lowest members of society. So, that's why I say from a purely human level, the Gospel is shameful. And yet Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of this seemingly shameful Gospel. I'm eager to preach it to you in Rome because I know that it is the key. It is the only way that you're going to have reconciliation, that I'm going to have reconciliation with God is through this beautiful, glorious Gospel. And so here's the effect of the Gospel. When the Gospel is properly understood, when we understand the Gospel, it has an effect on us. It causes us to be unashamed of this Gospel. So how do we avoid this trap of being ashamed by this seemingly shameful Gospel? How do we avoid it? We must understand the third aspect, and that is the glory of the Gospel. If we want to be unashamed of the Gospel like Paul is, we need to know the glory of the Gospel. We need to be confident in it. Notice how he connects this idea. In verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says, for or because. So why are you not ashamed, Paul? Because, and then notice how he answers, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel that appears weak and that causes stumbling is the great gospel that saves. This is how we can be unashamed of the gospel when we understand its effect 
when we understand its glory. And what is its glory? It is that it brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's the glory of the gospel. And then look at verse 17, because it continues. For in it, this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So, in this gospel, people have salvation, and in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The word for in verse 17 is, if you've been keeping track, it's the third time that this word is used already in just these two verses. For I am not ashamed, verse 16. For it is the power of God, verse 16. And then verse 17, for in it. What is Paul saying here? This word for in all three places has the idea of because. So we could replace the word for with because in each place. And it answers the question, why? So we could ask the question from verse 15, Paul, why are you eager to preach the gospel to the Roman believers? And the answer, beginning of verse 16, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then we could ask the question, well, Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? At the end of verse 16, the answer is because the gospel is God's saving power for everyone who believes. Do you see that in the text? And then we could ask Paul, why is the gospel God's saving power for everyone who believes? And the answer is in verse 17. Look at it. Because, or for, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to us. So he's got a logical progression that's going on here. I want to preach the gospel to you because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it because it's God's saving power to everyone who believes. And it's that because in the gospel, God's Righteousness is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. So, what is this righteousness of God? Because I think this is the key to understanding the glory of the Gospel. For in this Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is this righteousness of God? The construction of this phrase makes it difficult because the word of can mean many different things. Scholars believe that this phrase means one of three things. First, it could be referring to the moral character of God. That in the Gospel, God's moral character is revealed. And that is true. There is some truth to that, isn't there? Because in Romans 3, turn over there, Romans 3, verse 26. Here's one of the clearest expressions of the Gospel in verses 21 to 26. Perhaps the greatest paragraph in all the Bible. But here in verse 26, notice what the Gospel does. For the demonstration, I say, of His, Christ's righteousness, at the present time, so that He would be just, God, He would be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith. So, in the Gospel, we see this judge who should be punishing our sin, not only as the one who justifies us, says, yes, you are declared to be right, but we also see Him as a just judge in the process. And so, in that sense, the Gospel does have an effect where it reveals God's moral character. So turn back to chapter 1 because we're looking at verse 17 and we want to know what is this idea of the righteousness of God? Is it showing that God is righteous in the Gospel? Is that what Paul is saying? That's the first option. It shows God's moral character. The second option to what this phrase means is that it means it's, it's the righteousness that comes from God. It's the righteousness that comes from God. So, we could say the, the, the gift of salvation is the gift of God. Well, is that the salvation that's for God? 
No, it's the salvation that comes from God. So that's the same idea here. It's a righteousness that comes from God. Well, what righteousness is that? It's justification. It is that we are declared to be righteous. That's the glory of the Gospel. That's the second option. That we are somehow reconciled with God. The third option is that Paul means both at the same time. That the Gospel both reveals God's moral character and it shows us the righteousness that we can have, the reconciliation that we can have, the righteousness that comes from God. Now let me rule out the third option. The third option calls for a double meaning of the text. A double meaning. That is, that that somehow Paul means two things at one time. Now, it's true that in language we sometimes use words that have double meaning, like a pun or a double entendre or something like that. But you do also recognize that language would be completely unintelligible if we always spoke in double meanings. The fact that we speak in single meaning, uh, uh, with a single meaning purpose, 99% of the time, allows us to be able to understand when someone uses a pun. Because we understand the single use of a word in every other case. And one of the fundamental principles for interpreting the Scriptures is that the author of Scripture, God, and the authors of Scripture had a single meaning in view when they wrote the text. So, we don't have to um, allegorize the text. That is, we have to look for some deeper meaning that they might have had. There's only one single meaning to the text. And so that means that our job when we study the Scripture is to determine the meaning that the author intended by looking at the context. So I'm saying that this is not referring to the third option, which is that it has two meanings, both God's moral character and our justification. That leaves us with option one or option two. Option one, God's moral character, sees this phrase uh, to, to see that God is revealing His moral character. And I think that is true in other contexts like what we saw in chapter 3. But here I think it's referring to the second option. Let me give you two reasons why I think option 2 is correct. That when Paul is saying in verse 17, in, it, in the Gospel, the righteousness that comes from God is revealed. Two reasons why I think that. First, context. This idea of, of justification, that God makes us righteous in the Gospel, is what Paul is talking about in the context. In chapters 1-3, to he's showing that justification does not come by our works. We are not declared to be righteous before God because of something we do, but rather by what God does through Jesus Christ. Justification, instead, chapters 4-8, to comes by faith. And so, in the context, it seems to make sense that Paul is saying, listen, here's the glory of the Gospel. You receive justification. You are counted to be righteous. The second reason I think that Paul is talking about justification in verse 17 is because of chapter 10, verse 3. We don't have time to turn there. But there, the righteousness of God is contrasted with man's own righteousness. And in both cases, the idea is the righteousness that comes from, either the righteousness that comes from man contrasted with the righteousness that comes from God. So, I just encourage you to look at that verse when you have time. Here, I think the idea is, here's the glory of the Gospel. 
God declares you to be righteous in Christ. That's why Paul's not ashamed of it. Fourth aspect that we need to look at is the scope of the gospel. Notice at the end of verse 16. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Greek there is not talking about Greek ethnically. It's talking about all non-Jews. So, the Gospel first went to the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. It makes sense that it would go to the Jews first. But as they rejected it, God opened the door for it to go to all people, Gentiles and Jews. And that's the glory of the Gospel. That's part of it. That it goes to everyone. Every single person who believes can receive the, the, the effects of the Gospel. fifth aspect we need to look at is the demand of the Gospel. The demand of the Gospel. I've said that the Gospel or, or that justification is a gift, but God also puts a demand on us. Notice verse 16, salvation to everyone who does what? Who believes. And then look at the end of verse 17, the righteous man shall live by faith. So the, the call of the Gospel, yes, it goes out to all. It's available to all who will believe. But the Gospel, you recognize, will not be received by all people, will it? Because there is a demand that God has for all who will be justified. And the demand is not a work, but an act of faith. And it is belief. Paul describes this demand in three ways. First, Verse 16, to everyone who believes. And here's part of the glory of the Gospel. That the Gospel is only for those who come to God empty-handed. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is going to argue from chapter, in chapters 1-3 to that justification, a right standing before God, does not come by works. We cannot affect a right standing before God through our efforts. And therefore, salvation has to be a unilateral, one-sided work of God. And it's available to all without distinction. doesn't matter who you are. It's available to you. But we must come to Him on His terms. We must come to Him believing. Everyone who believes, the text says. We have to believe that God's work of salvation is sufficient and that Jesus Christ is to be trusted. Now, faith is not what brings about our salvation. We don't cause our salvation by our faith. Our salvation is caused by grace, by God's grace. But our faith is a response to grace, isn't it? As God pours out His grace in giving the Gospel to us and causing us to respond, we respond with faith. And it involves every part of our person, our mind, our emotions, and our will. We must know the facts about the Gospel, that Jesus died and that He rose from the dead and that He now lives and reigns over all. We must know those facts, but we also must assent to those facts. We must, that's part of our emotions. We must assent to their truth. Yes, they are true. But even those two things are not enough. Knowing and assenting to them, we also must put our unreserved trust in the Gospel. God, I'm willing to give up anything in order to, to, to go after this Gospel. I'll sell my pearl in order to buy this field where this treasure is, the treasure of the Gospel. 
the gospel is for only for those who come to God empty-handed. The second way that Paul describes our demand, what, what's our responsibility, is in verse 17. He says, For in it the righteousness of God, and we could just replace that phrase with justification or salvation, for in the gospel salvation is revealed from faith to faith. This phrase is kind of difficult to understand at first glance, but if you look at it as a parallel to the previous statement in verse 16. Notice, in the middle of verse 16, it is the power of God for, here's the parallel, salvation, salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, so think about those two parts. Salvation, everyone who believes. And look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness that comes from God is from faith to faith. So everyone who believes is parallel with from faith to faith. And the idea here is that the glory of the Gospel is that God grants His righteousness to us and that this faith is expressed over and over and over again by various people. The righteousness of God is revealed from one person's faith to another person's faith, to your faith, to my faith. That's the idea here. It's expressed through a person's faith. The final way that he describes our responsibility is at the end of verse 17 with this quotation from Habakkuk 2.4. But the righteous man shall live by faith. In Habakkuk, the prophet complained to God about the more wicked Babylon because God was going to judge wicked Israel with wicked Babylon. And God's response to Habakkuk in chapter 2 was that the wicked Babylonians would eventually be judged and they would fall. Don't worry about that, Habakkuk. But the individual righteous Jews needed to, during this time, in God's time of judgment, they needed to trust God by faith. That's why he said that there. The righteous man shall live by faith. And here Paul alludes to the same phrase that Habakkuk used in Habakkuk 2. And Paul is using it here how we receive life or how we live for God. And the idea here is that the one who is counted as righteous will be counted as righteous by faith. The way that we're counted righteous by God is by faith. This is what the, the, um, the reformer Martin Luther when he was studying through the Scriptures. He was a monk in Germany in the 1500s. He was reading through and studying and teaching through this letter to the Romans from Paul. And when he came to verse 17, he read this last phrase, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And he had been taught as a Catholic that wasn't right. He was expecting that the text would say, but the righteous man shall live by what? By works. And he reads it and it says, by faith. And it was at that time he said that there was a sweet exchange in my soul. That I recognized for the first time that it wasn't me that was going to get myself to God, but it was God who was going to get me to Him. And it was through trusting what He had already done, not in anything, 0% my work, 100% God's finished work through Jesus Christ on the cross is what's going to get us a right relationship with God. It's all in what God had done. 
So let me leave you with three principles here from our text. Number one, the Gospel is a call to obey. The Gospel is a call to obey. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son, you hear that? Believe or have faith in the Son. Son of God has eternal life. If you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. But if you do not obey the Son, you will not see life. For the wrath of God abides on Him. The call, the call of the Gospel is a call to believe or a call to obey. It's the same idea. It's to, to obey the Gospel call. Have you obeyed the Gospel call? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and what He has done? Christ demands that all people must repent of their sins and believe in Him. Have you responded in obedience to the call? If you have not today, if you have not done that up until today, today is a great day to respond to the Gospel call. But don't do it because I want you to do it. Don't do it because you're pressured into do it, doing it. Do it because you know that God is calling you and that you know that you cannot have a right relationship with God apart from responding to Jesus Christ by turning from your sins and believing in His Son. The call of the Gospel is a call to obey. Number two, the call, excuse me, the Gospel is a free gift to all who believe. This is part of the glory of the Gospel. That this Gospel is about Jesus Christ, but it is a free gift to all who believe. Now, we don't like to think of faith as a gift because faith sounds a lot like a work. But I want you to understand and I hope as we study through this letter to the Romans that you will understand that faith is a gift and not a work. Because it sounds as if faith is doing something. That we have to do something. And so that's a work. God's taking our work and turning it into salvation. So we actually work for our salvation. But what Paul teaches us, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us is that faith is not a work. That's what we're going to see in chapter 4. He's going to use the example of Abraham. That faith has always been a gift. Consider these verses, these words from Jesus Christ, our Savior, John chapter 6, verses 44 and 65. And consider that faith is a gift. No one, Jesus says, can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. We cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws us to Him. It's not that, that, that we're kind of floating out in the middle of the ocean and we need someone to throw us a life raft and so we're, we, someone throws it and we kind of swim towards it, we grab on and so we're kind of holding on until someone pulls us in. And in that way, it's kind of a cooperative effort, effort that we're rescued, right? That's not the picture of salvation that the Bible gives. Rather, it is that we are floating out in the ocean but we are lifeless. Because in Ephesians 2, the Bible tells us that spiritually we are born dead. We are born as sinners opposed to God. We are floating lifeless. We don't need someone to throw us a rope so that we can grab on because we can't grab on. We are dead spiritually. We need someone to take us out of the ocean and give us life. That's what we need. We need the... Uh, the, the the work of the Holy Spirit to breathe into us life. 
And so that's why faith is a gift. Jesus says it this way, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Do you hear the gift language there? Unless it's been granted to him. It's a gift. There's salvation. Philippians 1 says that it has been granted to you. It's a gift to believe in him. Your faith that you express in salvation is a gift. It's not a work. Do you realize what would happen if your faith was a work? then God would grant salvation to you as a wage, wouldn't He? He's saying, you worked, so here's your, here's your wage. I'm paying what I owe you. But there was nothing, including your faith, that you did in order to earn your salvation. All of your salvation was earned by Jesus Christ. And it was all by grace. So then, if faith is a gift, which I hope to prove over the next several weeks as we study through Romans, if it's a gift, why do anything? Why not just be passive, right? Why not just float? John Calvin said it this way, Faith is a kind of vessel with which we come empty with the mouth of our soul open to seek God's grace. It's actually a response to grace. It's, it's actually doing the act of breathing after life has been breathed into us. It's not grabbing onto the life preserver. It's responding with breathing and then thanksgiving to the One who's given it to us. That's what faith is. Number three, the Gospel is not to be tampered with. This is your Gospel and you should take pleasure in this Gospel, but this is not your Gospel to change. We are simply heralds of the Gospel, aren't we? Our job is not to change the gospel in order to soften it so that uh, uh, a world that sees it as shameful will not see it as shameful. That's not our job. Our job is to speak what the king had written down, has written down for us. We're the heralds. We simply read the scroll to them. We tell them the gospel as it is. We give them the unaltered gospel. Let the gospel be the offense, not us. But we are the heralds. We speak on behalf of God. Friends, Would you join me as we study through this letter from the Holy Spirit as we rediscover the brilliance and the shine and the luster that we once enjoyed about the Gospel? Let's rediscover it together. And as we do, may it empower and motivate us to serve God with greater fervency and excellence. Let's pray. Father, it is true that at times we lose the sense of the glory of the Gospel. We forget about the great beauty that we once enjoyed as we saw it for the first time. We wanted to dance in the streets when we realized that we were saved from our sin. But like so many things in our lives, we have put the Gospel up on a shelf and it's collected dust and cobwebs and we've forgotten how beautiful it really is. We've forgotten what that it is at the center of who we are and, and what we are to be doing. Lord, forgive us of that and restore us. Restore to us, as David prayed, the joy of our salvation so that we would be like Paul, unashamed of the Gospel, happy to proclaim it even though on a surface level, from a human perspective, it, it seems shameful. Lord, we want to love it 
for ourselves the, the benefits that come from just knowing this Gospel, but we also want to love it for the sake of others. We want others to know the glory of this Gospel and the beauty of it and how it can change them and how it, it will affect their eternal destiny, whether it's received or rejected. Lord, help us not to be um, lazy when it comes to our responsibility to serve You. May, may our love and understanding of the glory of the Gospel empower us and motivate us to serve You more faithfully, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.